0: How many times a day do you fall short of what God commands? And when you do, how does God feel toward you? The way you answer that question is hugely important for your relationship with God. Welcome to the Food for Your Soul podcast, where we apply the Word of God to the hearts of men and women to stoke the fires of your delight in Christ. Here's your host, Dr. D. Richard Ferguson. Inevitably, the quietest, the anti-work, anti-effort, anti-law crowd will use the word grace. They'll say, you know, I don't believe in all that striving and labor and legalistic effort to obey and all that. I believe in free grace. As if grace is somehow opposed to effort. They seem to think that grace... uh, the definition of God's grace is grace is just God sort of backing off of His requirements. That's a a feeling you get. It's like grace is God saying, uh, you know what, I'm feeling generous, Uh, I'm just going to give you like 40% off all the commandments. You know, just take it easy. That's not grace. Grace is the opposite. Grace is power to obey. Grace is not God coming up to you on the job at noon and saying, you know what, you can take the rest of the day off. No, it's more like God coming to you at noon on the job and giving you a protein bar and an energy drink and, and a raise, a big raise and, and a real inspiring, motivating talk that makes you so you can hardly wait to get back to work. It's empowering. It's empowering grace. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. His grace to me was not without effect. What effect, Paul? What was the effect of grace? Uh, he goes on. Grace wasn't without effect. No, I worked harder. That's the effect of grace. Hard work. Hebrews thirteen nine. For it is uh, good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Grace strengthens the heart. It gives you strength. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you. What's the result? So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good, what? Work. Ephesians 3, 7, I became a servant by the gift of God's grace, He gave grace that made me serve. My work, His power. So, where are you in in your Christian life? Are you sweating it out with a shovel and a wheelbarrow right now? You just like you just point of exhaustion. Huge mountain hasn't budged. These things you're fighting against the Christian life. You're getting nowhere. If that's you, you need to ditch that shovel. Get the earth mover going. Focus on the second part of the phrase. Yeah, your work, but God's power. You need to focus on that side. Or maybe you're, you're trying the whole let go and let God thing and you've, you've been influenced by that and you're just thinking, I need to, I need to stop trying, stop striving. Just, just think about God's grace and, 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 and that'll somehow just make it happen. And, but you're looking in the mountain and it's still towering over you. You're still not getting traction in your Christian life. If that's you, you need to focus on the first part of that phrase. Yeah, it's God's power, but it's your work. Your work. God's power. So get off the launcher. But what if you understand both sides? And you're the latter guy. You're trying to draw near to God. You're trying to do it right. You're trying to learn what the Bible says about how to tap into divine power. You're not shoveling with your own strength. You're, you're relying on God's strength and you're doing the best you can, but you are working hard. You're trying to walk by the Spirit best you can, but you just keep getting discouraged. It just seems too hard. It seems overwhelming. It doesn't, it, you feel condemned and broken. Then what do you do? I wanted to spend one more week in these same two verses. And I don't want to get tedious here and how slow we go through the book, but I, I just felt like we need to stay here because, because I think there's some very important principles. I think there's a lot of people in that, that third place that I just described. You're trying to do it the right way, and yet you're getting discouraged and feeling overwhelmed. And I think there's some principles in this, these two verses that will really help uh, a lot with that. Inevitably, whenever I preach a sermon about duty, this is real heavy on God's commands. This is required of you. Uh, a lot of, lot of uh, imperatives. Typically, I'll get pushback. People will talk about how they were discouraged. And, and when I ask them, sometimes people leave the church over that. There's like, it's too much, too much duty, too, mu- too much commandments around here. And, they'll, and I'll ask them, I'll say, are those commandments not in the verse? am i am I reading it wrong or are they not there, and they'll say, no, no no i they're there i i I can see that they're there. it is commanding the stuff. it's just ah, it's just too much it's too much and so when that happens, what's going on there with a person like that? Is that just just spiritual laziness? I don't think so uh you know in some cases it might be, but in most cases, I don't think that's the issue in my experience. The biggest reason why people resist commands and imperatives in the Scripture is not so much because of laziness, but because of guilt feelings. You know, Christians are people who long to be loved by God and to feel that love. That's that's what what we're all about. We want to have closeness with God. And we long to be accepted by Him and not condemned. And we long for Him to be pleased with us and not displeased with us. And so when we read about God requiring all these really high standards and calling us to live this way, and then we see all our multitude of failures, we just think, God must be unhappy with me. He's got to be. How could God have anything towards me other than anger, given how many times, how frequently I disobey Him and rebel against Him? He's got to be upset. And, the, and they can't stand the thought of God incessantly being upset with them, constantly, all the time. And so they want to get out of that, and the only way they can get away from that is by imagining that God, grace means that God is lowering His standard way down here so that I, I'm just over it a little bit. How should we think about God's attitude towards us in relationship to our failures when we sin? Because God wants us, he tells us, abstain from sin, right? And then what do we do? We go out and sin. God tells us, obey, and we disobey every day. God wants us to walk in wisdom, and what do we do? We do foolish things. He wants us to persevere and we give up. He wants us to be selfless and we're selfish. He wants us to be thankful and we complain. He wants us to be diligent and we, we, we're lazy. So much failure again and again every day. So when that happens, what does that do to our relationship with God? What is his attitude looking down at us? Let's look at these two verses. Verses 12 and 13. Now, there's four observations I want to make. Just point these out to you as quickly as I can. So so first, let's start with verse 13. Verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. God is working in you, fixing your will. Think about that for a minute. Because the biggest mountain you're ever going to have to move is your will. That's a big, big problem in the Christian life, Right? the will I don't want to get out of bed and read my Bible right now. I don't have a desire to pray right now I don't want to go to church I don't want to you know uh, I don't want to go and reconcile with that person and uh, yeah, the Bible commands it so I try to force myself to do it and that'll work for a little while but wow well, but if, if the desire isn't there it's not I'm not going to have long-term success how do I change my desires? How do, I, how do I go from being unwilling to being willing? That's a mountain. It's a huge mountain. And if I try to chip away at that with my little shovel, nothing's going to happen. Did you know that God is willing to do the heavy lifting in that area of your will? He commands things and He helps you obey in your own willingness and desire to obey. He helps you there. He helps you way down at that level. Have you ever heard of any other God in any other religion ever offering that at all? What other religion has a God that that helps His people become willing to do what He requires? The false gods of the pagans have all kinds of requirements, right? They, got, they require you to behave a certain way and all that stuff, all these rules. But what other religion have you ever read about where the gods lift a finger to help you start willing the right way? Start desiring what they require? Like in Second Chronicles 30 where God commands certain things and he stirs up the hearts of his people to do the thing that he commanded. And you just see that over and over in Scripture. See, in human religions, it always works the same way. You, you sin against God, and then you've got to do something to make up for it. And the, 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 the responsibility of reforming your heart is 100% on you. Get your heart right. That's totally you. In the Bible, it's different, isn't it? God does that. When David, remember David, he, he, he committed adultery, he committed murder, and he's repenting of that in Psalm 51. When he's repenting, uh, what does he do? I mean, he could say, God, I'm sorry, you know, please forgive me, and everything. But now, what about the bad heart? What about my, my lustful, angry, selfish, deceitful heart? What am I going to do about that? How is David going to go from that to having a pure heart? Well, just ask God to. Create one. <laughs> Psalm 51.10. This is part of his prayer of repentance. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Creator, you make things. Like, you make new things. That's what I need here. Not a reformation. I just need a whole new deal. You said once, let there be light. Boom, and there was light. You said, universe. Boom, there's the universe, right? And, and, and so you can do that. So now I want you to say, God, let there be a pure heart in my servant David. And there, boom, there will be. There will be. Just create it, God. And, and, and while you're at it, make sure it stays that way. As he goes on in the prayer, verse 10. Renew a steadfast spirit within me and, verse 12, grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So God, give me a pure heart, then make it steadfast, make it willing, sustain it, keep it going, because, honestly, I, you can give me a pure heart and I'll just foul it up in no time. So God, I need you to create it, I need you to hold on to it, I need you to keep nurturing it, uh and oh by the way I also want to praise you uh but I'm not because my lips just aren't into it. So uh verse 15, uh, oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will praise you. That's that's verse 15. Open my lips and my mouth will praise you. Just 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 get it going, God. I I'm 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 not quite willing but I'm willing to be made willing. Make me willing. Will is a complicated thing, isn't it? All kinds of different levels of willing but isn't it amazing that we can ask God for stuff like that ask God to make us will and God doesn't say oh sorry uh, that's free will uh, your decisions your de- willing that's totally free will that's uh, 100% on you that's uh, out of my realm no no he works in us to will and to act what a blessed thing that is what an encouragement! Now, someone will ask, "Which comes first, the, my work or His power? What's the order?" That's where mystery comes in. Be careful how you answer that question, because I know that some are prone to just oversimplify in, in one direction or the other. Our Calvinist friends will be their tendency is to say, "Oh, God's always first. He 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 works, and we respond. That's just that simple." And they're they're maintaining God's sovereignty. And then our our Arminian friends will will say, no, no, uh, we act first. If we act, then God will give grace. Which one is it? I think both of those are an oversimplification of what the Bible says because the Bible says both of those. It uses both language, both sides. Many times the Bible does actually put your responsibility first. Like, for example, Ezekiel 18, 31 he says, God says, rid yourselves of all the offenses that you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. He's like, why, why are you going to die? I'm not doing that. That's you. It's your decision. It's not necessary. So that, that makes them like, they act. If they would repent, if they would get a clean heart, then God would, would respond. So you have passages that talk like that. But there are other times, many times, in the Scripture where it goes the other way. Where you find out you do repent and, and you do believe and then you look back and you find out God's the one that caused that in you. He worked in you to willing to act. That's verse 13, Philippians 2.13. Or Hebrews 13.21. Uh, it's a prayer. May He work in us what is pleasing to Him. See, this is why I told you last week. It's a paradox. It really is. Because even your repentance comes from God. Acts 5.31, 2 Timothy 2.25, it's something God grants. And same thing with your faith. We saw that back in chapter 1 of Philippians. Remember in Philippians 1.29, it's been, it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ to believe on Him. Granted by God. Acts 13.48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. They believed because God had appointed them to believe. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. You come to Jesus because the Father gave you to Jesus. Verse 65, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. So there's no simple, simplistic, easy way to just come up with a system for understanding how God's work in our hearts and our responsibility fit together. It's a, it's a mysterious thing, but we must, must Believe both sides of this paradox. Both sides are crucial uh, because if you downplay one side or the other, then you either make God the author of your sin or you make you the author of your salvation, both of which are heresy. Right. But the point that I want to emphasize in this sermon, my point today, is... On the sovereignty, the divine sovereignty side of this, God working in you—it's God who works in you to bring about the things that He desires. What does that tell you about God? What He's like? It tells you that He's on your side. Right? He's He's on He's on your side. When you think of all the times when you've sinned, you've disobeyed gone, you've rebelled, you've stumbled, um, and, and, and you get the sense that He's got to be against me. He must just be down on me, sick of me. That's not true. God is for you. He's on your side. He's working in you. Don't think of God as like a you know, police officer who is mainly just uh, enforcing the law and bringing lawbreakers to justice. And that's His main thing. You know, a better analogy for Jesus would be the one that he gives us in John 15, where he's like a gardener. And you're the plant. What is the attitude of a gardener toward his plants? It's positive, right? It's good. He's the one who planted them on purpose. He knew there would be weeds, he knew all along there would be weeds and that that they would need a lot of water, and they would need nurturing and tending, and it's going to be a whole lot of work and everything. And yet, he planned those things anyway. Why? Because he wanted them. You're like a plant in God's garden. You were his idea He planted you, he wanted you, he planted you for his pleasure. He delights in you. He's doing this work because he delights in you. And the reason he wants to get rid of all the weeds in your life, it's not because he's against you, it's because he's for you. He wants you to be what you were created to be. A beautiful flower. And so when weeds come up in the garden, does God take hard action against those weeds? Yeah, he does. He does. But he doesn't have animosity towards towards the flower. All the efforts of the gardener are for the sake of the flower. And listen, listen. God does not regret planting you in his garden. He does not regret planting you in his garden. He knew all along the stuff you were going to do. He knew. He planted you anyway. Now, I realize the garden, the flower analogy breaks down because flowers can't rebel intentionally rebel against the gardener even though it seems like they do they actually don't and so the analogy breaks down but we do rebel but when we do that we remain his beloved children you catch me right at the moment um, when I was raising my kids when they were little if you caught me right at the moment when my I was the most disappointed in them that I've ever been the whole time they were growing up you caught me right at that moment guess what I would still, you would still see more love in my heart for them than any other kid in the world. And God's love is a whole lot more stable and a whole lot more intense than mine. Keep your eye open today for things that people take care of, whether it be flowers, a tree someone planted and watered, An expensive bicycle that somebody keeps clean and well oiled and hidden away from thieves. A nice car, a manicured lawn. Watch out for things like that today and let it remind you each time of God's nurturing, tending, protective care for you as his prized possession. Father, you tend your flock like a shepherd. You water your garden, prune bad branches. Protect from harm. Rip out the weeds. Help me see and appreciate your nurturing love. Remind me that it's not just that you command me to make an effort to live a morally beautiful life, but that you have an interest in seeing to it that my efforts succeed. We're on the same team, working toward the same goal. I don't want to take the team... Analogy too far, you are my Lord and King, your will is my command, and I humbly bow before you and obey your word. But at the same time, you're also like a coach, calling out instruction from the sideline, and you're even like a teammate, passing me the ball and blocking for me. From top to bottom, you are the author of my salvation, every nook and cranny of it. Forgive me for sowing weeds in my own garden, Lord, for sabotaging my own flourishing in opposition to what you're doing. I pray for my family, Father. Please, let them see this facet of your love. Let them feel your nurturing love and care and enjoy it so it sparks greater love for you in them. Teach us to cooperate with your work in us. I pray for my pastor. Let him really appreciate this part of your love so that he can follow in your steps and nurture the flock of Christ this way so that we may grow to maturity in Christ as each part grows and builds itself up in love. When you found me, I was like a discarded infant kicking in my blood. You rescued me, saved my life, washed me, tended my wounds, and gave me health. You clothed me, and fed me, and raised me in your royal family. Teach me to live like a child of the great King of the universe, the Holy One. Thank you for listening. If you found today's episode edifying, why not share it with a friend? This season of the Food for Your Soul podcast features excerpts from our sermon series on the Book of Philippians, 50 expository sermons covering every verse. You can find those and hundreds of other sermons for free download on drichardferguson.com. Until next time, rejoice in the Lord always and set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God.